Hello, and welcome to Always Forward ABA, a podcast where we believe that a happy life is one lived in growth. On this podcast, we discuss the latest in habit and behavior change research, our struggles and successes in managing our own behavior, and how we can use behavioral science to grow and move forward. I am your host, Katherine K. Gorgas, a board-certified behavior analyst specializing in severe and dangerous problem behavior and based in Oceanside, California. Welcome to episode three. Today's episode is an interview with Nicole Felix, my friend, my coworker, and she's a BCBA. We work together at a nonprofit organization. Uh, Nicole works with families in their homes, and I work with non-public schools and an adult day program. And I want to talk a little bit about how Nicole and I met because it just, I'm just so excited to be having this conversation with her and to be starting this podcast and getting it going. Um, and I, I'm, it, it, it's emotional, you know, um, to think about how far Nicole and I have come together, it's emotional. And so Nicole and I met when we were both in supervision and we were working under the same BCBAD for our supervision. Um, and we were just getting our feet beneath us in understanding the science of behavior. And if you've gone through that process of becoming a behavior analyst or getting an academic education in in the science of human behavior, it's, it's like a very sort of emotional and eye-opening process because you're literally learning why people do what they do. And in that process, you have a lot of aha moments. You have a lot of moments where you're like, WTF, somebody please explain this to me. Um, You have a lot of realizations about yourself and about your loved ones. And you really need other people to kind of bounce ideas off of or to help to help you process that, um, as it comes up. And I really felt like Nicole was that person for me because I was taking my exam and I really didn't know that many behavior analysts at the time. I didn't have the connection I have now through social media and things like that. It was really just my supervisor and Nicole who was in the process of becoming a behavior analyst. And I would go to her so often to just tell her how I was feeling or to tell her like, this cool thing I learned or to have her help me explain something or to make sure that I was explaining something right as I was uh, studying for my test. And I think when you go through that process with somebody, it just, it feels like a lifelong bond because it's just such a monumental thing in our lives to learn about the science of behavior. And we ended up working together as special education teachers on kind of a crazy whim, we got preliminary or uh, provisional permits so that we could be special education teachers because we had this really unique experience of working with students and their families, um, students whose disabilities affect them and their families in severe and profound ways and, and students who have severe problem behavior. And so it's really hard at our agency to find people with that experience 
to be special education teachers. So a lot of times we hire from within and it just so happened that Nicole and I were kind of in the right place at the right time in our, in our career that we were asked to take these positions as special ed teachers. And it was incredibly difficult, an incredibly difficult job. Special ed teachers work so incredibly hard. And when you add, um, you know, severe disability, when you add severe problem behavior, it is a really incredible, an incredibly difficult job. Um, add staffing issues to that mix. Um, the, the multitasking that you have to do is a lot, but it was a very cool opportunity because we were part of a team that was just so dedicated. We had seven people in the building in leadership positions and all seven of us had worked with the, in the same setting as one-to-one direct support staff. And so we just had a very unique perspective of what it was like to both be a leader and a direct support staff in the same building. And we kind of all sat down together and said, you know, how how do we make this better for our students? And how do we develop a culture where we can undo some of the oppression that happens against this population? Um, how do we make sure our staff feel heard? How do we make sure families feel empowered to do what they need to do for their family? Um, and it was an incredible process and, and we still work in that same setting. So it's, um, it's just been such a huge process of growth for both of us, not only in our own careers, but within our agency to, to be a part of a team that is looking to grow and make things better for people with severe disabilities and severe, um, problem behavior. And so to be here now and making a podcast, talking about growth, just feels really good. It feels like, it feels like something I never could have imagined, you know, getting, getting this far in my own learning and my own growth is just something I never could have imagined. And with Nicole, you know, she's quite a bit younger than me, but we have this connection that supersedes everything. And I have learned so much from her. And I think we both saw that putting our brains together to solve often really complicated social and behavioral problems, we found this level of synergy and that when we put our minds together, we could create something that was more than the sum of its parts. So uh, I'll leave it at that. And um, I'm excited to have this conversation with Nicole. All right. I am here with Nicole Felix, my friend and BCBA and coworker. Um, and I'm just going to jump right in because I have like a million questions for you, Nicole. We get chatty anyways. So that's true. We'll, we'll probably <laughs> like this. A podcast is perfect for me because everybody knows I like to talk. A lot. <laughs> so it's really right up my alley. Um, and, and the first question is really just for you to explain a little bit about your work life and your job. We both work together at the same company, but we're in 
different departments right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so just what is your job? What are the basics of what you do every day? And how did you find yourself in this job? Yeah, so I work for the Terry ABA department. Um, so what that looks like is I'm mostly doing in-home ABA right now. And then with COVID being the way it is, I also have some telehealth clients. So as a BCBA, I do the development and the supervising of the programs. Um, but what's kind of unique about Terry is we also do a lot of direct intervention. So I think about half of my clients, I'm also working with directly sort of in the role of like an RBT. Um, right. Like the soul, the soul model or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from just, I don't know how much you've talked about this, but Terry serves a very unique population. So it can sometimes be difficult to find staff to provide that direct support. So, um, yeah, I'm always willing to just jump in and do it myself if nobody else is around to do it. That's, that's a good point because you haven't heard the intro I did about you yet. Um, Mm -hmm. but I talked about that, like how we both ended up being special education teachers because it's really hard to find special ed teachers and that, okay. So how did you come to find yourself in this job? Gosh, it just, I feel like I I resisted it for a long time, actually. (laughs) Like when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, I don't know, do all this like more glamorous type stuff. (laughs) And then uh, when I was in high school, I had to do an internship and I just like to cross it off my to-do list. I did it uh, with a family friend who was a principal at an elementary school. And on a whim, she just stuck me in a special education class one day, uh, more mod severe students, and I loved it. (laughs) And I kept ditching my other assignments to go hang out in the special day class with all these cool kids. Um, And then in college, you know, I was studying other things, but then I had a roommate that was studying to be a BCBA. And she kind of got in my ear about it. And she helped me get a job at a school district working in special education. And there was just kind of this moment where I realized I'm, I'm good at this (laughs) and I enjoy doing it. So I should just, I should just do it. (laughs) I love it because, um, I didn't come to even know what ABA was until long after my undergrad. So I'm always... Mm -hmm fascinated by that. Like when people were in their undergrad or shortly thereafter, like really realizing that becoming a behavior analyst was an option and all of the variety of things that one can do. Um, you know, I think it's really cool. You're like, you're quite a bit younger than me. (laughs) I think you're like almost 10 years younger than me. And it just boggles my mind to think like, you know, that you were able to go through both undergrad and masters, you know, before the age of what, 20, four, 25, right? You, I mean, you I'm the type of person, once I decide I'm going to do something, I do it. So yes, I love it. Once I discovered ABA and it felt like it was just a combination of everything that I loved. It was working with people that I loved. It was a science and data driven, which I love, but there was also this element of like creativity. Totally. Um, and once I realized I could do that as a job for the rest of my life, I was like, I'm sold. <laughs> Yes. That's so cool. It's, it's a never ending. It's definitely a field that is never stagnant. You know, there's always, and and even if you had to pivot in a complete like 180, 
you'd still be under the same umbrella of, of this field, but you could be yeah. doing something completely different. Yeah. So that brings us to our next question about, um, you know, we both work primarily with kids with um, either severe disabilities or severe problem behavior. And mm-hmm. I think of the students that we work with often as an underrepresented group within an underrepresented group. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people who think about this field may not necessarily consider this particular population or may not, you know, sort of, they may not come to mind as, as a first mm-hmm. thought. So what do you think is different or unique about being a behavior analyst working with this particular population? I think that there's just such a huge shift in priorities. So for my kids that, you know, are, they don't have severe problem behavior or their disability isn't as severe. Um, The families a lot of times are more interested in working on things like self-help skills and, um, you know, things that'll help them do better in school and maybe one day have a job versus when I have a client with really severe, dangerous behavior, oftentimes I go into the home and the attitude is, we don't really care about that stuff. I don't, I don't need my kid to learn how to make his own snack. I need him to stop throwing his head through the wall. And so just that, that shift and that focus in on what's important changes. Yes. And then everything also becomes more complicated. So That's true. finding staff becomes more complicated. A lot of times the function of the behavior becomes more complicated with dual functions and just the programming becomes more complicated and you have to take into account safety and just yeah the stakes are higher you know it's like you're figuring all of that out while somebody is potentially harming themselves or harming Mm -hmm. someone else or or causing harm in some kind of way um and you know even even if it's a student who may not have like explicitly dangerous behavior let's Mm -hmm. say you have someone with such extreme escape motivated behavior that they won't even leave the house or they won't leave their bedroom I mean, and that that in uh, some way is affecting the family, you know, in a way that's really pervasive to that family or to that the parents or or to that individual. And yeah. um, so I think that yeah, the stakes are definitely higher in trying to figure out what the function is, um, mm-hmm. and and act act quickly and while still acting ethically, while still taking that individual's agency into account. You know, yeah. there's just so many things to think about. And I know for me, it really this is the really the main population that I've worked with. So it's, mm-hmm. it's one of my only perspectives, but I think it has really helped me develop a good perspective about what we do because it helps us to remember that like somebody, you know, let's say someone who's autistic, mm-hmm. we don't have to change facts about an individual, an, about an individual's autism. We, we mm-hmm. should really only be looking at what is causing, you know, if, if someone's behavior is causing harm or, um, is unsafe to that person, then yes, that's, that's clearly a priority. And from there, there's certain skills that then like, once there's those skills are met, or once somebody has the ability to communicate, for example, um, or to tolerate basic things in life. Mm -hmm. Now you're like what you said, you know, self-management, self-help, um, skills that help you make friends or skills that help you get the job you want. Like all of those can then come into play. Um, So do you have any pet peeves about the field, uh, the general field? I mean, 
I obviously, I mean, I think we all have different pet peeves about whatever field we're in, but I think, you know, it's good to be sort of critical. I mean, it's good to think critically about what we Mm -hmm. do to make sure that we're always being as ethical as possible. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before, but the biggest thing for me is I really want the field of ABA to team up more, be more communicative with adults who have autism, who are able to talk about their experiences with ABA and, you know, take into account some of the things that they've experienced and use that to improve the work that we do. Yes, Um, I love it. You know, I have, you know, friends outside of my work life that have disabilities and have some pretty traumatic experiences, um, not just with ABA, but with other therapies that they had to do when they were younger. And I've always, you know, tried to take their experiences into account and use that to, you know, just provide more ethical services and Mm -hmm. think about, am I really taking into account what is good for my client right now? Or what is good for, you know, what would be easier in society? Right. And I think we have to remember that, like, are the individual is our client, like yeah. first and foremost, then it might radiate out to, you know, other significance in their lives, you know, mm-hmm. but like, we still have to take the client's best interest into account, even if, you know, their community or their parents or whatever might have mm-hmm. certain things they want to accomplish. Um, and you, I think you can do both, but I, I think you're right. I mean, I think as a field, we need to own that, own yeah. the fact that so anybody can take this science and use it harmfully. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, I mean, just, I guess, just like anything else. I mean, if you're a teacher, you could teach in really harmful ways. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that education itself is harmful in my opinion, but mm-hmm. I do think that we all have to own that fact that like, it is on us to use this science in a way that benefits the individual first. And yeah. Um, and I see a lot of times, you know, people bring it up and then, BCBAs will be like, oh yeah, things were really bad back Mm -hmm. in the day, but we've improved so much. It's not like that anymore. And I get that, but I also feel like we should always be looking for ways that we can improve, that we can be more ethical and that we can involve our clients as much as possible in their services. Right. And that everything we're doing comes back to like, how is it helping them, you know, Mm -hmm. have more agency in their life? Mm and that will help us with our, how we target behaviors. I know, um, you know, even our own, a lot of our own clients who have severe problem behavior, uh, in Dr. Hanley's article about today's ABA, he, he talks about the, the idea that anybody who has severe problem behavior has likely experienced trauma, even if they can't vocally, you know, articulate that they're experiencing trauma because of intervention. They're experiencing Mm -hmm. trauma because of whatever is evoking the behavior itself. Um, Their families are experiencing trauma. Like, so we have to be really trauma informed. And I know, I know for a fact, like families who have, you know, had a great experience with us have, have had, um, have had ABA that really has helped them have Mm -hmm. also had ABA that was incredibly traumatic. And so it's not like, you just have to recognize that like we have some role in Mm -hmm. being trauma informed in order to support an individual, especially with severe problem behavior. And it's interesting. I feel like I didn't get any of that 
in my schooling. It wasn't until we yep. started working together and kind of taking a step back and looking at things differently that we realized, oh my gosh, there's trauma all around us in this field. Exactly. Yeah. And I think now, you know, now we have so much more access to hearing from people that we may not normally like have in our direct community because we have social media, because we have TikTok, because we have yeah. Instagram and, and that's a great thing. I mean, it really is a great thing, but I also, I, we, you know, we should absolutely listen to every, um, everybody's experience. If somebody feels a certain way, we have to believe that, you know, yeah. and we have to take that seriously and not try to, um, you know, explain it away. I think that's where a lot of behavior analysts just need to like be quiet on the internet, <laughs> like yeah. stop responding to people by saying, no, that's not actually the case. Like we can't, yeah. get we need to listen and then reflect on our own, um, interactions in our own lives. Yeah. Um, it's hard to do though. Cause it's like, it is hard. Yeah. You, you feel like I'm, I'm doing something good and it's hard mm -hmm. to take a critical look at yourself, but I feel well, like I it's think so essential for us. It's, you know, so many of our students aren't able to vocally mm -hmm. tell us what, what they're feeling. And I, I don't want to make assumptions that because, you know, one person with autism speaks about their experience. And then we, tr we, we can't like apply that to every person's experience, yeah. just like, you know, we, we just, we, we need to recognize an individual's experience. Just like we say, if you've, if you've met one person with autism, it doesn't mean you can make generalizations or assumptions about other mm -hmm. people. Um, and really, you know, we, we end up serving a lot of people who don't have autism and, yeah. um, have, have other diagnoses or, um, other reasons for problem behavior or for, you know, unique behavior. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, it's an, it's a long conversation and I hope that it'll be kind of a, it'll be something I touch on as much as I can, you know, it, yeah. it's something that is foundational to what we do. It's not just like, mm -hmm. okay, here's a quick, uh, here's a quick podcast episode where we talk about it. It's like, no, this yeah. is going to be something underlying everything that we talk about in this field. And really it's, especially if you work with people with severe problem behavior, yeah. um, we have to consider every single action we take in, in the process of teaching somebody to replace those problem behaviors. Mm -hmm. So what ways right now in your job, do you feel like you're an expert and in what ways do you feel like you're a noob? And I, I ask <laughs> this because like, we think we all have imposter syndrome to some extent, yeah. but I feel like sometimes we talk about imposter syndrome so much that it's like, okay, we forget to recognize that we are also experts. Like yeah. You know, we're also experts in some areas and we should talk about both. Like, yeah, I'm an expert in this area, but also I have things to learn in this other area. Yeah. At work, I feel myself like getting in the zone anytime I get to do any sort of staff or family training on basic ABA concepts. I feel like especially when we were teachers together and we were training the school and really trying to make the school more behavioral, um, I got really good at like breaking down these concepts and making it easy for people who don't have a behavioral background to understand and implement these concepts in their work. Um, times that I feel like a total noob, gosh, this is like so superficial and silly, but switching over from working at an NPS mm -hmm. over to working in an in-home setting where you have to consider billing 
oh, it's the worst. And I can't wrap my head around it. And I'm so bad at it. And I've just, I'm so used to like at, at the school we worked for, you would just, you would do whatever needed to get done. If I needed to take three hours out of my day mm -hmm. to run an FA, I was going to take three hours of my day to run that FA versus working in an in-home setting where you have the limits of what you're able to bill. Maybe you only have a certain amount of hours every six months to do things and having to work within those parameters is just is so hard for me and I suck at it. <laughs> That's uh, It's one of the reasons that I continue to work in where I work for probably a lot less pay than what I could make working in home. But that's, yeah, I, I just, I, I'm so satisfied with my job as it is because I have a lot of flexibility to be like, we're going to figure this out no matter what. Like if a kid has, yeah. has really severe problem behavior, like we're going to do as many assessments as it takes. We're not going to have to, we don't have to worry because there it's at school. I mean, and we yeah. can't, if somebody has that level of pervasive problem behavior, a lot of times the educational goals are not able to be run or not, not able, you know, the kid is not ex uh, available for traditional teaching, let's, yeah. let's say, because there's problem behavior. And so we just take as much time as we need to do until we can figure it out, you know, or yeah. get that kid to feel comfortable and available for oh, education. And I miss that. I feel like there's this whole <laughs> level of like time, extra time management and like getting things done quickly and efficiently, which is in some ways great, but also can mm -hmm. be very, very difficult to work within those parameters when you are working with a kid with more challenging or complicated behavior. So it's, it's been a struggle for me, but I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> how did, how have you like, how did you learn? Like, did you have to go to other BCBAs and like shadow them? Or did you learn from like, I know we have a great operations manager yes. up in there that really helps us with so much of that, but like, did she just kind of explain everything or how did you learn all that? She runs my life basically. <laughs> and Shout I, out to Brooke. <laughs> yes. Brooke runs my life and I tell her, I try to tell her all the time how much I appreciate her and how I would be completely lost without her. And it, she definitely gets frustrated with me sometimes because I'm still like figuring things out and I still, I really suck at like converting my appointments in a timely manner. And Every time she like leans into me, I'm like, thank you. I needed that. You're right. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely more experienced uh, BCBAs that have been working at in-home for longer or have worked with other agencies where they're more responsible for their own billing mm. um, have been a huge asset to me because it's not only is it just, is it different than not having to deal with billing at like a school but even each individual insurance company has okay. their own rules and parameters. And I, yeah, I'm still learning all the time. Well, that kind of, it's a good segue because the reason, I mean, we love Brooke. Brooke is like <laughs> superhuman organizer. Like yes. it's truly incredible. Like what, how she organizes or, or runs operations in any department she's at. So my next question was about like organization because A, <laughs> I mean, I am super unorganized mm -hmm. and 
I have to work really hard to like establish systems to be organized. And yeah. I feel like you're much more organized than me, but we, we also never get like, you don't really get official training in organization in like your master's program. And so I'm just curious, how do you organize your life to ensure you get everything done both, both personally and professionally? Yeah. I mean, it's still a work in progress. Like I, I feel almost a little bit like an imposter answering this question because there's so many times where I feel like I'm falling apart. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't have a system. I'm so disorganized. Um, but you're right. I, there was no like official training. It was kind of trial by fire, especially, um, I mean, in college, especially undergrad, I was taking on as many responsibilities as I could. So I just kind of had to figure it out and had to figure out how all those pieces went together so I could get everything done. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I think the the biggest teachers in my life for being organized and getting things done have been my parents. Nice. So, you know, growing up watching my mom and dad, they always they always did the worst thing first. <laughs> so whatever the most pain in the butt thing was that they had to do that day, they would wake up early, get it done and have the rest of the day to have fun and play and hang out. And That's so, amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I aspire to be as on top of it as they are. Um, but it's the reason, you know, I wake up every Saturday morning and I'm like, it's time to clean my apartment. It's the most sucky thing that I have to do this weekend. And so I'm going to make sure I get up early and get it done first so that it's over and done with. Um, oh my gosh. That's just, so amazing. Yeah. They're I, I'm like the masters. opposite. I'm a master <laughs> avoider of like all the worst stuff. And that, and then the only reason I get it, the worst things done is because there's like impending doom or like yeah. a deadline that if I don't meet, like it's going to be terrible or it's like, I just can't. I mean, I have certain like pet peeves about cleaning, you know, my apartment, yeah. but, but not not, not many, like I, it's just certain things that I'm like, Oh God, I have, you know, I see that there's like a thing on the ground and I know I have to vacuum or whatever, but I just, I'm, I'm the same way. I have to, it's a never ending process for me. I I just recognize the fact that like, this is something I will be working on for the rest of my life. I will never be that type a person that just like Mm -hmm. has it all together or has like, you know, even just has the systems together. Um, but I kind of enjoy, I have t- I've taken time to just enjoy the process, right? Like mm-hmm. I enjoy learning from other people, what, what yeah. they're doing. I enjoy doing my planner and trying different planners and talking with my coworker. I know, uh, you know, our coworker, Courtney too, like we are always talking with her about like <laughs> planners and like systems and how we're like color coding things or how we can make the yeah. data sheets even more organized or, you know, whatever it may it be. It helps when it's very aesthetic. I know exactly. Yes. There's something so satisfying, like a color coordinated system is like my dream, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's very hard for me to go from like nothing and then to like conceptualize what the system will look like. That's the, that's the piece that like doesn't, doesn't connect for me. And I see other people who are like, they look at chaos and they're like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to start categorizing this, you know, and they just, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And they just know it's, it's just like, yeah, it's an amazing thing. I'm in such awe. So, okay. Next question. What is your true morning routine? Like, I want you to be like honest. And then, I mean, from there, okay. Like what is your actual morning routine? Yeah. As, as at least, 
you know, for me, I don't really have, it's not the same every day. So it's yeah. like, I'm always trying to work on making it better. And so, yeah, what is your actual morning routine? Do you have aspirations for what you want it to be or new habits that you want to add? This question makes me so sad because COVID <laughs> has wrecked my morning routine. It used to be so uh, solid and consistent and I, I feel bad because it's been a whole year. I feel like I should have gotten my shit together by now. Ooh. I should have a new COVID morning routine, but. Well, tell us a, your before and at, like what, what was it before? What was it oh, happened God. during COVID that it, what it is now? Well, before COVID we were still, well, I was still working at the school. Mm -hmm. So that helped because I had the same exact hours every day and I had to be at a physical building at the same time every day. So I knew I was going to wake up. 30 minutes before I had to leave the house, I was going to put on my work clothes, which were usually leggings and a Terry t-shirt because of the population that we work with. You got to be able to move around quickly. There's no dressing up for work. Mm -hmm. Throw my hair up, brush my teeth, grab my lunch, get to work. And then this was where like the, I feel like the real morning routine would start at work almost because I'd Ooh, have my oatmeal and make my tea and check in with the staff and you know, help out with scheduling, um, check in with all of the students. And it was just a nice way to like start every day. And mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be the same thing every time. So even if I was tired or not feeling on top of it, I could kind of rely on the muscle movement. Mm -hmm. but, I love that. Yeah. I never really thought about like the morning routine that starts after we get to work. <laughs> like I literally yeah. never... <laughs> Never well, really I mean, thought about that. For me, part of it is like I value sleep above totally. <laughs> almost everything else in my morning routine. Not many people are comfortable getting out of bed 30 minutes mm -hmm. before it's time to leave the house and just doing kind of the bare minimum. But I mean, luckily, working at the school, we did. It would be weird if I showed up like looking on point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I get up super early and I mean, I don't, my sleep is always a freaking problem, but working on that and I get up super early and I like to just have the time where it's like quiet. Mm -hmm. And so typically I make coffee. I'm definitely freaking on my phone. Some, sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm not on my phone, but mm -hmm. I, um, I get up, I make coffee. I'm either watching something on my phone or on freaking Instagram. And then I like sit on my yoga mat and drink coffee and like sometimes do yoga. <laughs> like <laughs> a lot of times I just sit on the mat, you know, which, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, as long as I get on the floor every day, like mm. that's, that's, what's important to me. It's a, it's a weird thing. It's like, I don't need to do a 45 minute yoga routine, but getting my body down onto the floor, I think yeah. day until I'm hopefully a hundred is, yeah. is the goal. It's like, I want to be able to move all the muscles that get me up and down onto the floor. So oh, I love that. That's such a low pressure approach yeah, to exercise and uh -huh. wellness. Just like, just do a little something and that's fine. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. I I'm always fascinated by people's morning routines. And I, I, you've told me before that you like have no problem with sleep, which is just like, sounds so magical to me. And yeah. I think, I think that's an interesting factor in your morning routine is like sleep is the priority where for me, it's like, I kind of, I tend to over-prioritize everything. It's like mm. sleep is a priority. Working out is a priority. I got to do my calendar. I got to write for 15 minutes. I got to, you know, post something on Instagram or, you know, just a million things that it's like, 
it's not realistic to do all of that. And I tend to get like almost like decision fatigue because I feel like I have so much I want to do in my morning routine, but I realistically can't fit it all in. And I should probably just worry about sleeping until the point that it's like, I feel awake. (laughs) I feel like that's almost a thing too, especially with our generation. It's almost like a competition who got the least amount of sleep. Oh, I only got four hours last night. Oh, I only got three and I had to get, screw that. I need nine hours to feel good. And I'm going to make that a priority. It's wild because I know in my twenties, like through college, I mean, I would not sleep, but I would stay up literally all night writing papers and then go to class and present a, do a presentation. And now Mm -hmm. it's like, if I get anything less than six, um, it's very damaging to my Mm -hmm. entire day. And then I'm just like pissed off because I'm like, I know this day is not going to be as good as I want it to be. I'm not going to do all the things, which is also kind of a mental game. It's like, if you don't, if I didn't look at my Fitbit app and see how much I slept and I just sort of told myself, like, I feel good. I feel awake. I would probably be fine, but it's like knowing that I didn't get enough sleep is part of the problem. Yeah. I'm not big on the Fitbits. I feel like it's too much data. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So I love my Fitbit, but I think that's a, uh, that's a whole conversation in itself because I, Mm -hmm. I do think that we get a little bit too extreme about data these days. And especially in regards to how you're feeling. I mean, the most important data point is do I feel good right now? Did exactly. do I feel refreshed in the morning? Well, and we forget that all of that data. Okay. Yeah. It's all, it's all fine and good to have data. You need to have it in order to know what progress looks like, mm-hmm. but we forget that that information is also a potential SD, right. Yeah. For our private events, for mm-hmm. our overt behavior. So like, if I look at my Fitbit app and I see that I only slept four hours, that's an SD for a whole lot of private events that are not useful, you know, and, and we can easily, I can easily avoid that by not by getting rid of that SD, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I think the same goes for like tracking food from, you know, um, in a lot of ways, like I've spent a lot of my life tracking every freaking thing, but it come, you get to a point where it's like, is this helpful or harmful? And you have to kind of continuously check in with yourself. Like, yeah, it's great to track things and stay on top of your own behavior, but it Mm -hmm. does, but we also have to be like regular humans. Yeah. (laughs) We're not not computers, you know, like we have to kind of be regular humans that enjoy ourselves too. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That's a, that's a whole, that's a whole thing that I just have been thinking about a lot, but all the data you need is inside you. It's been inside you the whole time. <laughs> Such, I mean, it's not, it's not, not true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, um, the, the human biology got people really far without yeah. them having <laughs> Fitbits and smartphones and computers, every freaking you know, place they go. Okay. So anyway, anyways, I mean, this is this, okay. This question, it's a little bit bigger of a question. And then we have like Mm -hmm. a couple, a couple more short ones, I guess. And then we're going to do a segment about knowing ourselves better because I am all about that. And we don't need We don't need data to do that. (laughs) We can just ask questions and think about it. Yeah. (laughs) And um, then you're going to give us a, try this at home sort of self-management tip. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and then we'll wrap it up with some um, rapid fire questions. Fun. Okay. So, okay. So this question I'm asking because I want to talk about problem behavior in our yeah. own lives, but I, I think what happens a little bit too often is people who talk about self-development or talk about growth or mm -hmm. goals or habit change or whatever, sort of oversimplify the process of dealing with a pervasive problem behavior, you yeah. know, something like quitting, uh, for me, it was quitting biting my nails. Like mm -hmm. this is a habit I had for my entire life, as long as I can remember. And you can't just package that behavior up and be like, all right, identify the problem. Okay. Write a smart goal. Okay. Track yes. your data. Like it yes. doesn't work like that, at least not for me. Um, and that's because I, I can't really be my own contingency manager. I can't, yeah. I can't withhold reinforcers and I can't manipulate the environment to, you know, make sure that those, uh, those MOs or those antecedents don't evoke that behavior. So I did end up quitting my nails, but it mm -hmm. was through a lot, a lot, a lot of trial and error. It was yeah. never, it's ne it was never a clean no. smart goal that I just met, you know? So I'm, I'm at, my question for you is what is the most pervasive problem behavior in your life and how do you sort of continuously work on it? Or if you have already yeah. changed it, how did you do that? It can be covert or overt behavior. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot because we're, we're good friends. Um, I feel like also I'm, maybe I should do like a, a bit of a trigger warning right now. Um, yeah, sure. Um, if you have any experiences with disordered eating or anything of that nature, you might want to skip ahead right now if that'll be triggering for you or tough to listen to. Um, but for me, definitely the most pervasive behavior in my life that will just take over anything, everything um, is my disordered eating that I've been working on for the past, mm -hmm. I think, three or four years now. Um, it's definitely not as pervasive as it used to be. I mean, when I was really struggling with it, it took over freaking everything. Um, but it is still something that I have to keep on top of because if I don't like that, everything just dissolves. Um, and the way I changed it, you're right. It wasn't a quick and simple set a goal to <laughs> eat more calories every day. Um, it was really complicated. It involved a lot of different specialists and just analyzing every single aspect of my life. Um, it actually, <laughs> I'm remembering this, uh, when we were studying for the exam, I mm -hmm. took a mock test. And one of the questions for this mock test was, you are a behavior analyst working with somebody with bulimia, which is the most appropriate intervention for this client? And the correct answer was sit outside the bathroom and systematically decrease how long the client is in the bathroom. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, that is not That's the correct terrible. answer. <laughs> uh, yeah. A definite, <laughs> a definite oversimplification. And I, it's, it's a, it's a problem in our field to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I felt like in the beginning, when I was first going through a uh, recovery, there was this feeling that I had to separate out like my BCBA brain versus my CBT and ED mm -hmm. recovery brain. Um, but now I've come to a point where I'm able to kind of mesh the two and realize they're, they're actually not that 
different. I love that. Cause that that's how I, I have come to think about mental health, um, stuff and, and even quote mentalistic stuff yes. is like, I'm, I'm just kind of over, I'm just over it with the separation between yes. mentalistic stuff and behavior analysis, because, um, a, I think it's annoying that we're taught, like we're explicitly taught that, like you can't use mentalistic terminology. And, and maybe that comes from the place of like, okay, don't write your behavior yeah. plan using that terminology, but people take it as like, I can never say the word anxiety, or I can yes. never say the word I'm having a feeling about something, you know? And, and I mean, I've been that person, you know, so yeah. I, I, I'm I not judging, I'm not judging anyone, but that we were all sort of trained to do that. And then you kind of have to untrain yourself when you realize like you work in a, in a field that you're dealing with people and you're dealing with social problems and you're dealing with oppression of, you know, marginalized groups. And you cannot just, you can't, um, sanitize that from the emotional elements that, that come along with all of those things. And because we try to sanitize it, I think that's where we get, you know, the, the fad sort of treatments that become harmful, you know, yeah. or like facilitated communication. That's really about, you know, getting to, to an individual's emotions through something that is less than evidence-based. And I, I think we're doing a disservice for ourselves and our families by, by separating those, but I'm, I'm glad you yeah. brought up your, you know, your history with having an eating disorder, because I know for me, you're the first person that I've met that like I've known in person mm -hmm. that has struggled with that. And you were so open about that struggle, which I just found to be so refreshing and like genuine and authentic because it's so normal, especially, you know, at work for yeah. us to talk about like health and like losing weight and mm -hmm. and you were very I'm vocal. so bad I'm eating a cookie right now yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean I have 100% been that person and mm -hmm. um you know gone through my own sort of weight management struggles or weight mm -hmm. struggles or body image struggles and um but you were so vocal about all the things that were kind of problematic in that mm -hmm. and I was like oh my god like I never noticed it's, it's a, it's a, it's a privilege thing. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's one of those intersections where it's like, because I don't struggle explicitly with an eating disorder, I was looking at things as if that was totally normal and, yeah. and it's not normal, you know, for, for somebody that could be triggering, or it could be evoking a lot of, you know, behavior that is harmful to them. And, um, it has definitely shifted my mindset. You know, I, I still, I am, um, I'm, I'm always worried my, okay. Let, let me put it this way. My eating habits are pretty bad in terms mm -hmm. of health in the sense mm -hmm. that like my normal is to just eat junk food, um, mm -hmm. highly processed eating out. If I eat out, I only want to eat fried food. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like, and I don't really have a, I don't have a problem with that in Mm -hmm. specifically, like, I don't, I don't have rules about like, oh, I shouldn't be eating that. Yeah. But I do recognize that there could be long-term 
damage that I'm doing to my body by Mm -hmm. not eating enough nutrients. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I'm always trying to build behaviors that, you know, help me eat more nutrients without putting rules on myself of saying like, I can't eat this or I can't eat that. Mm -hmm. But there have been times in my life where I have put those rules on myself and it completely backfires every single time. Yeah. And I think when, when we look at it behaviorally, there's a lot of people who do have very strict rules about what they eat and what their diet is. And that Mm -hmm. seems to work for them. But I just know we, it can, it can be so easy to watch somebody in that situation and be like, what the hell is wrong with me? When I try mm-hmm. to eat healthy, it's a complete mess and, and all of this, yeah. all of this stuff. And it's, it's behavioral. If I restrict yeah. something, I create a, um, a MO for deprivation yeah. <laughs> and it, I will, it increases the value of those reinforcers of food that tastes good, you know? Yeah. Um, One of the big things I've learned through eating disorder recovery is they say it's about the food, but it's also not about the food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so looking at my behaviors around food and asking myself, what is the true function? Because 99.9% of the time, the actual function isn't to lose weight and be skinny. Right. The function is I'm trying to escape from something aversive. The function is I'm trying to call attention to myself. Mm-hmm. And once I kind of, you know, if I'm struggling with eating disorder behaviors, I I ask myself, why am I doing this right now? And then creating a functional replacement behavior from that. And it's not always perfect. Like you said, it's not creating a goal and holding mm-hmm. yourself accountable and sticking Discipline. to it. Discipline, yeah. Discipline, yeah. It's a lot of, you know, ups and downs and leaning on other people and sometimes, sometimes muscling through it and just being disciplined, but so just you, always going back to function. I'm curious, like, do you, when, when you look at either your current or previous behaviors, either, either overt or um, covert behaviors mm-hmm. related to your eating disorder, did you find that, was it the, res- was the restriction of food or was it like was restriction of food somehow calming to you or helping you avoid certain things? Or was it like the food rules? Like, I'm just kind of curious more about. Yeah, for me, the, the actual feeling of starving is the ultimate escape behavior. Wow. Because when you're, when you're that hungry and that, you know, underfed, all you think about is food. No matter how stressed out you are, no matter how many things you have going on in your life, the thing at the front of your brain is food and planning what that next meal is going to look like. And so it's a great way when you're feeling, you know, depressed or stressed out or anxious, all of that can be pushed to the back of your brain because all you have to think about is the food. And so it Mm -hmm. was a great escape behavior in that way. In more practical ways, I also had a lot of extra skinny person privilege. So people would go out of their way to help me and do things for me. There's a lot of reinforcement. Yes. So much having certain body sizes or or types in this society for sure. Yeah. And for me, one of the, you know, appropriate behaviors that was hard for me is saying to people, Hey, I'm having a really hard time right now. I feel sad. I need, I need support right now. But I found that by restricting my food and having this body type, I was able to get some of that concern and some of that attention Mm. without having to ask for it. So interesting. 
Um, I mean, it, it's always a fascinating topic because everybody eats, right? Everybody yeah. has eating behavior. And so when it, when it, and I think it's unclear to a lot of people at what point it becomes either a, a quote disorder or disordered mm -hmm. eating or, or whatever it may be. And I think that, that line is so unclear to people. And there's so yeah. many quote normal behaviors mm -hmm. that look, it looks similar to what you're talking about, you know, eating for reasons to escape binge eating that, yeah. you know, I mean, you look at binge drinking or binge eating and that's pretty much accepted as normal, you know, in, yeah. in our society. And, and I think that's where, that's where I struggle is because a lot of my sort of problem behaviors around eating are just considered like what normal Americans do. Yeah. And so it's like, I, you know, how do I, <laughs> If I obsess about food, if I try to restrict it mm -hmm. in any kind of diet, which again is considered normal uh, for yeah. a lot of people to go on restrictive diets, um, I could definitely see that those sort of obsessive thoughts would come up and I would be around food and think like, and I just would be nonstop thinking about it because I was yeah. restricting it. And that's, I mean, that's how I learned that like going on a long-term restrictive diet was a terrible idea for me. And, yeah. and now going on any type of restrictive diet is not really in the cards for me, but I, I want to, you know, I still want to find balance. I still want to find healthy mm -hmm. habits around eating, but it is, it is a never ending process. I think it's tough for us, especially because obviously we're drawn to this field because we love data in part mm -hmm. and we love being able to measure things and it's been such a a mindset shift for me because for me having a healthy relationship and with food is supposed to be a very intuitive thing right it's a very self-reflective and mindful thing and it's not something that I can measure or take data on in fact when I try to it's usually a slippery slope into doing things that are unhealthy. Exactly. And I think that's what people need to recognize is like, it's not a one size fits all solution for, mm -hmm. for somebody who has never, um, who, who just eats everything that is in front of them or any, every, and that's kind of, that's kind of, uh, what is, that's kind of the side that I'm on is like, I'm going to eat everything that is sort of presented to me. And I have, I have almost like a constant feeling of, I need to eat this now because later yeah. it's not going to be there or later I'm going to be restricting or whatever. And that's not healthy either. Yeah. But I think for people who are going through that, it, it to them, it's like, well, I have to track things. And yeah. that is, that is the way to get healthier. And it's, it's not the way it is a way if that works for you. Yeah. And so intuitive eating is a great solution for a lot of people. And, and we need to, I think, recognize a little more, um, especially, I don't know. I mean, anybody can post whatever the hell they want on, yeah. on the internet. <laughs> they need to like censor themselves, but I think it's just something to be aware of. Like, instead of saying, this is the answer, mm -hmm. pitch, pitch your, your advice as what worked for you, you know, yeah. um, because a lot of people out there are struggling with what society thinks of as the answer. And it's not, I, I mean, the people that say they have the answers and that they eat this way and it's perfect, mm -hmm. it's not. They slip up like yeah. the rest of us. And it's just a matter of, you know, are you gonna make that just 
accept that that's a normal part of being a human that right. you're going to want to have cookies and ice cream sometime or are you going <laughs> to beat yourself up about it because you're not living up to what are frankly really unrealistic goals yeah and it's our we, we can't we can't fight our biology we no. can only fight <laughs> our biology so much you know um and and understanding behavioral science we all know that so i mean that it's a it's a great conversation i've i have personally you know i'm really grateful to you for being so open about it because like i said i had never met anybody who talked openly about it even though i know i've met people who've experienced it but it has not you know for a lot of people it's not comfortable to talk about for all of these reasons like what society sees as normal behavior or you know like weight loss goals at work and like you know all kinds of fit initiatives that have to do with changing your body. Yeah. That might not be the thing for everybody and it might be harmful even. And I think we have to really remember the individual, like when it comes to behavior change, everything should be individualized mm -hmm. and um, we shouldn't be extending judgment about yeah. anybody's path toward healthy behavior. I just want to say too, you have been such a big support for me, especially in the early days when I was first starting recovery. We worked in a place where fitness goals and weight loss was really heavily emphasized and mm -hmm. reinforced with bonuses and um, things of that nature, which is fine for most people, but was really tough for me. And I just, I'm so grateful that you and our other coworkers really kind of rallied behind me and listened to what I had to say about why that was difficult for me. And I think we've actually been able to make some pretty good change within yes. our company, just shifting people's mindset away from, you know, weight loss and more towards a more inclusive, well-rounded emphasis on health. Yeah. Health and wellness. And I know even for me, um, through both hearing your perspective, I mean, well, through multiple things, like hear, hearing your story was a paradigm shift, I think for me. And also, um, you know, I had spent so much time trying to change my body for mm -hmm. years, for like a decade, you know, and, and was, you know, had up and ups and downs. I did, I did change my body to some extent. And then I would kind of go back to my old habits. And that's what always sort of freaked me out is like, I know what my trajectory is based on my sort of natural habits. Yeah. And I'm always like wanting to fight against that. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't just let my normal habits take over. It'll be terrible. Yeah. I'll be unhealthy and it'll have long-term damage. And that's, that may be true. So it is about finding balance. Yeah. And, um, and as I get older, I care less about what other people think about my body and care <laughs> yeah. more about how I feel in my body. And, um, and that's a huge change. And I know, like, I've talked about it on my, my Instagram and all that. It's like, I have a uterine fibroid that is literally protruding out of my stomach and is the size of a six month pregnancy. Yeah. And like all of this time I was agonizing over what size pants I would fit in. Like, it just seems so stupid now mm -hmm. looking back on like, oh my God, I went up a pant size. And it's like, I thought it was because I was a horrible person who yeah. couldn't control herself. And really it was oh, a medical gosh. factor. You know what I mean? And and even then it's like, even if I did gain weight because I was eating differently, again, it's not because of any, hor you're not a horrible person. It's not yeah. about, it's not because you're lazy. It's not because you can't control yourself. There are behavioral contingencies, very unique to you and very yeah. unique to your learning history that are at play. And you just haven't found 
the right balance yet or the right strategies to make you feel the best and, and behave the best that works for you, you know? And we've talked about this too, having more information and, you know, having these, you know, thoughts beating yourself up about your weight or whatever other goal you have for yourself doesn't work to change your behavior. Exactly. It, it really, it serves no purpose other and than to make you feel shitty. <laughs> could even, yeah. And it could, could likely be working the opposite. You know yeah. what I mean? For me, it definitely was, you know, we talked this whole, this whole podcast, my whole always forward ABA thing is about growth and is about mm -hmm. focusing on growth. For me, a happy state being in being happy is mm -hmm. just being able to grow. And I like that mm -hmm. mindset because no matter what happens to you, um, no matter what happens to you, you can always grow from that point. If you get set mm -hmm. back, if something, if horrible circumstances come your way, you can still go from that point and grow. Any, and I look at kids with severe problem behavior, you know, kids who may not, um, have romantic relationships in their mm -hmm. lives. They may not own a house. They may not get married. All of these societal yeah. benchmarks that are kind of arbitrary, but like mm -hmm. we weigh, they're weighed so heavily in like what, yeah. what people consider successful. It's like a lot of my students won't have those things in their life. So like, that doesn't mean they can't have a quality life or, and it doesn't mean that they can't live a life of growth. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think that's getting out of that mindset that like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I accomplish these things? Yeah. Like a goal oriented mindset or like a fixed mindset to I can wherever I'm at and no matter how many times I don't exactly meet the goal I'm trying to meet, I can still find growth. I can still find ways to grow. Like that's, mm -hmm. that was, that was a huge life paradigm shift for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how I like to look at problem behavior. It's not like, it's not, there's not necessarily a terminal destination. It's mm -hmm. like, even if I were to conquer all of my food issues and eating issues, I'd still have areas to grow. It wouldn't be like, okay, you're done now. And yeah. I can just kick it. It's like, this is going to be a constant journey. Yeah. It's not a perfect linear graph. It never is yes. when we're working with our clients. It's not in regards to our lives either. And I think just kind of we gotta relax, go with the flow a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Quit beating exactly. ourselves up because it's so normal. true. It's so true. Okay. So this next question I love because I want to normalize changing your mind mm -hmm. based on new information or based on like what we're talking about, like a paradigm shift in mm -hmm. your life or a mindset shift. Um, so what have you changed your mind about? Mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest one we've kind of touched on, but just that mental health and ABA have to be two completely separate camps. And in order to do good ABA, we have to leave behind all of, people can't see my hand gestures, but <laughs> <laughs> that you have to completely discount mental things that people would call mentalistic. Yes. Yeah, I agree. That's a big thing that I have um, changed my mind about too, is just the, even the term mentalism, I'm like, mm -hmm. shit, man, like let's embrace it. You know, we should be using mentalistic. Let me, let me say this. And it's like, <laughs> maybe it's an unpopular opinion, but like 
we should be using mentalistic language when we talk with families. Like, I'm sorry. If it's what they understand. Yes, exactly. Yes. Like when we, especially when we talk with non-behavior analytic people, mm-hmm. yes, we have to translate the language into something they can understand. But a yeah. lot of times what they understand is a mentalistic explanation of behavior and that's okay. Yeah. And I mean, I do it all the time in meetings. Like if I'm presenting an FBA, you're not going to find the word you know, maybe like frustrated or whatever in no. there. I'm going to operationally define what that behavior looks like for that individual. But when I talk to the parents, I'm going to say, Hey, here's how we're going to set up his environment to make sure he doesn't get frustrated. You know, yeah. like, and it's someday I'm going to do a training on how to present an FBA or how to present mm-hmm. in meetings, because I think we lose so many parents in those meetings by just being like sounding arrogant because of yeah. our jargon. And then, um, yeah, I think I think bringing in a little more humanity and a little more mentalism is a good thing. <laughs> you can see like their eyes glaze over, they just start like <laughs> nodding along and that's when you know you've you've lost them. And it's just it's such a we get so caught up on it. Like why would I say there's an aversive aversive stimulus present and the client is exhibiting challenging escape behavior when I could say they're anxious and that's why they're doing this thing. Totally. Yeah. And it, and it, it means the same thing. It's just less words. <laughs> right. And we don't have to design our intervention based on, you know, non-defined behavior, no. but like, but when you're talking to people like, yeah, that's okay. Um, okay. So I'm just going to jump into the next segment. Okay. Um, which is our know yourself better question for the day. So the know yourself better question. And again, like knowing yourself, your internal and external behaviors is huge. And something I've been doing lately that has helped me know myself better, like instead of setting out a to-do list of like, okay, here's what I'm going to do to have like a great morning routine. Mm -hmm. I think more like observationally, like when I have a great morning, I look back and I'm like, Oh, what was my routine today? So, you know, that, that's how I think of knowing yourself better is like observing your own behavior. Mm -hmm. So the question is, if you suddenly had an extra room in your house, what would you do with it? This is my dream. <laughs> I know. It's like so great to think about. <laughs> um, again, the people can't see, but I am currently sitting in my absolute garbage one bedroom apartment that I share with my fiance. I'm sitting in what's supposed to be a dining room that's been turned into an office for a yeah, bunch work of from home. gaming nerds that work from home. <laughs> And we are packed to the gills and I hate it. And we're falling apart and we're finally moving in a couple months. So we'll have that extra room. Um, But what I want is I want to have a proper office, which means I would also have room for a proper dining room so that I can stop eating in front of the TV or at my desk and really have a nice relaxing meal. And then I'd have my office that I can go into to work and play games and I would have space for, I'm getting into watercoloring. So like having space to do my watercoloring in the evenings and. Right. Like (laughs) more, when I think about an extra room, I'm like, uh, the way that you can have better, you know, discrimination between stimuli, (laughs) right? Yes. Like like that's my office. That's where I do work behavior. This is my home and this is where I do home behavior. And, um, it's been so hard with COVID too, because yeah. I've always had to go to like a library or like a designated yep, workspace to. to be productive. And now 
we you have know, no choice sometimes. Yeah, my my relax zone, my desk where I'd play my video games at night or my sofa where I'd wind down and watch a movie is also my workspace and it's been it's been hard to be productive and it's also been hard to relax because everything is just so blended together now. Yeah, that's so true. Um and we should mention we live in Southern California, so it's like we spend a lot of money on space and we don't mm-hmm. get a lot of it. You know, mm-hmm. I live in a two bedroom apartment with three people. So yeah, it's not, it's not much more space. My bedroom is like tiny. Yeah. Um, and I have my desk in there. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> Oh, I'm my desk is like literally pushed right up against my bed. There is mm-hmm. no, there is no space. So what would you do if you had an extra room? I mean, I'm kind of on that same page with you. I just want an office so bad. Like mm-hmm. every day I like to get up. I love to have all, I would get a humongous table. That's what it would be. It would be yes. like a room with like a giant desk or a giant table and lots of bookshelves and storage because all I want is like a space where I can have all, I, I mean, I have like right in front of me, I have one planner, one notebook. That's like Mm -hmm. where I write like morning journal type of stuff. I have a separate notebook. That's a prompted journal, five minute journal. I have a study notes, ABA notebook. And then I have a whole bag full of other separate notebooks for like all my different categories. And every time I use them, it's like, they're just piled on the floor and like piled up in different spaces. And I have to move them around. I just want to like them to be static and like this is where they go this is their home Mm -hmm. I get up in the morning I pull it out and I write you know and maybe the the know yourself better element of this is like okay how can we bring this to our lives without having that extra room and in California the answer is make more money (laughs) it's so true I know it's so hustle harder that's yeah uh, that is the California way that's (laughs) but it does make me think like okay maybe I can do something you know Mm -hmm. where I can like have a have a actual, you know, I can Marie Kondo a little bit and I can have a place where the notebooks go, not in my bag constantly on the move. You know, I think what I should do is I should have an account on my, like a a account on my PC, one for work and one for play. Cause right now it's all one big thing. And all of my gaming bookmarks are right next to my work bookmarks. Oh my God. That's a great idea. It's so easy during work to just like pop into (laughs) Reddit real quick to check something out. And then same thing in the evenings. It's so easy to just check my work email really quick. Tell me about it. Yeah. The work, the work on your phone, like the work email on my phone is like death of me because it's, I'm all out immediately. It's like under such stimulus control, I see that freaking thing pop up on Outlook and I have to click on it. You know, do you have a separate work and personal phone? Yes. Thank God. Yes. Good. (laughs) I used to not, but yeah, I do now. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful to that, but I do a lot of my outlook on my personal phone because it's an Android, you know? So um, do that. Take it off. (laughs) I know I do. I do need to just get rid of it. Um, Okay. So yeah, that's a, that's, it's so interesting. I love, I love, like, I love talking about our own, like knowing ourselves better and then like Mm -hmm. how that gets us to design our environment in ways that will evoke the behaviors we want, you know? You know what else I would do? I would get a really big cat condo because my Aww. my kitty deserves the best. Just, <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I, you know, I would I would build like um, shelving like all around the top of the room so that you can have the stairs that go up and the cat. Oh, can that's so fun. Go around. Oh, yeah, they, she would love that. What does that say about us and our like? How is that reinforcing to us? 
like seeing our cats happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seeing our most beloved family member. I just want to give you the best. (laughs) It's so true. Um, Okay, so our next segment is a try this at home self-management tip. And so Mm -hmm. you being the guest today are going to share a self-management tip with us. So this has been my hack for either when I'm really unmotivated or even when I'm just like really, really down and like having a bad depressive episode where like just doing basic human things are hard. I set the teeniest, teeniest, tiny, most ridiculous baby goal for myself for that day. So, you know, if I need to clean my whole apartment, I'm living in squalor. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, there's clearly hours of cleaning ahead of me that need to get done, but I'm just not feeling it. I set a goal for myself that I'm going to take the cups that are stacked up on my nightstand and I'm going to move them to the kitchen and that's it. I don't have to wash them. I don't have to do the rest of the dishes. I'm just going to move them to the kitchen. And a lot of the times just taking that one little step is enough to like kind of build the momentum, the behavioral momentum. And then I start doing the other things. But also if that's truly all I can manage that day, then that's okay. And at least I'm crossing something off of my to-do list and really patting myself on the back for that. And I find that if I just take that little tiny step, it's able to build more and more down the line. I love it because it's you, um, yes, like sometimes the behavioral momentum will take over and you'll do more, but also if you don't, you have your own sort of built-in reinforcement that isn't, it isn't like arbitrary reinforcement. You're not like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to do the cups and then I'm going to give myself a cookie, you know, which has nothing to do with the function of, you know, cleaning. Right. Um, but you actually build in like the natural reinforcement of like accomplishment of like, I met a goal or I crossed the to-do list Mm -hmm. off. Um, and there's, I wanted to mention, there's a book. I don't know if it's out yet. Maybe it's out already. It's called the tiny, it's called tiny habits. The small chain, the small changes that change everything by BJ Fogg. I heard him talking Mm -hmm. about this on a podcast and it's almost exactly what you're describing. Like he, he's like a neuroscientist and behavior scientist. And he basically says like people bite off way more than they can chew when it comes Mm -hmm. to their own behavior change. And so, yeah, if you, if, if you want to work out, literally just putting your shoes on could be the first yeah. First step. If you want a new behavior of working out or going running and he's, he goes as far as to say, like, give yourself some kind of positive, uh, verbal praise, you know, like basically saying like, um, you put on your shoes and then you're like, good job. Like, (laughs) you know, and he's like, as silly as it might seem, like we constantly criticize ourselves, you know, through, through private events about stuff we don't do. And it's like, you need to start flipping that script. And so I, I haven't tried it like full out, but I, once in a while I'm like, good job, Catherine. Like I floss. That's the hardest <laughs> thing for me. I feel like, I feel like if, cause I have very mean private events, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've just got this drill sergeant in my head that's right. telling me all the time what I need to do and putting me down for not doing what needs to get done. And like, I know that's not productive and it would be more productive if I encouraged and reinforced myself but I still I feel like everything will fall apart if yeah 
I reinforce myself for the little things. It's like you're surviving on the negative reinforcement of like, you know, you set up this environment that's like aversive, which is like, you're going to be, you know, criticizing yourself. And then if I get the thing done, I don't have to criticize myself. You know, it's like you remove that criticism of your, of your own which is not, not great. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. it's, not, it's not like, it's just not a fun way to live. You know, it's no. not fun to like always be avoiding some aversive thought or consequence. Um, it's a work in progress. <laughs> well, and I, I know for me, one of the things, I mean, this is kind of an extra bonus, try this at home because mm-hmm. I wasn't going to mention this today, but it's, it's just been so, so life-changing. I feel like for me, <laughs> I was reading, um, a book, the atomic habits, which is kind of similar about like sort Mm -hmm. of tiny habits and how you change them on your own. And, um, he says something about like, if you change your to-do list, like all the things you have in your head, even of -hmm. like, okay, I have to get up. I have to go running. I have to get a workout and I have to eat healthy. I need to write in my journal to, I get to, and -hmm. like, I did not realize how much how much pressure I put on myself about the things I have to. And it's yeah. like, I have to do this. And then I didn't do it. How could I not do something that I had to do now? I'm like, what was wrong with me? Da, da, da. And it leads to all those private events Yeah, and literally just going, I get to get up and, and go for a walk. And it's like, it, it sent, it fills me with like this rush of gratitude. Every oh, time I, I change it, it's like, I get to write in my planner and my journal this morning. And it's just like, instead of obligation, this, mm-hmm. this feeling of obligation, it's a feeling of gratitude. Like, oh my God, I get to go outside and it's 70 degrees and it's beautiful in January, you know, like it's been, it's been unreal. Like I just started this this week and it's been an unreal. Oh, I'm going to try that. I, I try really it out. like that. Cause then, it, then you get rid of that. Like I have to do this. And if I don't, I'm a lazy person. It's like, you can't, yeah. the, the rest of that sentence doesn't follow. If you change it to, I get to, it's not like yeah. oh, I get to do this. And if I, and if I don't, I'm a lazy person. Like it doesn't fit, you know? <laughs> I like it too, because I, I mean, I'm working on like self-love and all that stuff, but that's, that's hard, but just an attitude of being grateful for things is exactly. a little more extrinsic. And I feel like that'll be more accessible to me versus right. I'm great the way I am, which is true, but like, it's hard for me. It's hard to believe (laughs) like you could say it, but you might not believe it. And there's something there's obviously there's a lot of research about gratitude and about like Mm -hmm. doing gratitude practices, but I've just been shocked with the, I mean, I can write about what I'm grateful for all day, but I don't always get that feeling of like, you know, the almost like emotional, like tearing up sense of gratefulness. And yeah. when I change that, like I get to, I get to do a podcast. Like I was speaking yeah. this morning, like not, I have to do, I have to, oh my God, I have so much to do before this podcast. Like I get to do a podcast. Like look how freaking fun. we were both together when we like, didn't know what we were doing. We just got yeah. started. Like, and to be here, it's like this overwhelming sense of gratefulness. And that, that mindset shift is huge. So yeah, I hope that can help a lot of people, honestly, it helped me a lot. Um, okay. So let's, uh, first I wanted to hear if you have any, po- a, 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 a recommendation for us, either a podcast, a book, or an article you want to, you want to recommend, and then I'll include it in the show notes. Mm. Oh gosh. If not, don't worry about it because I already recommended two books on this podcast. So. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to blow your cover here. Catherine sent me a list of what to expect for this uh, podcast, <laughs> and I totally 
skip this one over that question so i am unprepared <laughs> well i'll just you know what i'll do is in the show notes i'll include some of these things we've been talking about the tiny okay. habits book um mm -hmm. I'll, I'll probably include dr hanley's article because we i mentioned yes. that for a second and then we'll throw in um uh atomic habits which i i love i know a lot of behavior folks out there love it too and then also, you know, I should recommend, I should mention that like so much of this podcast and how I structure it and how I, the things I like talking about come from other podcasts that I love, including mm -hmm. Gretchen Rubin's Happier Podcast. A lot of people have a lot of different opinions about Gretchen's <laughs> behavioral field, but I, I personally love her. She's completely different than who I am. You know, mm -hmm. she's a much more type A can meet all of her personal goals kind of person, but her framework for understanding ourselves is like so satisfying to me. And her podcast is really segmented like this. I get some of these segments from her. Oh, cool. I'll have to check um, it out. Also the financial diet. That's a great podcast. Oh, I love the financial diet. I love like people who talk about finances as if like they're talking to real people is yeah. just, that has been a huge life-changing thing for me too. Like thinking about thinking that I'm a person who could like get her finances under control. Like I've, I've just never, I've never had that like through my whole life, like mm -hmm. money, it's money has always been sort of this thing. That's like scary. And like, we're just always panicking about like, do we have enough to make it, you know? And so I need to get better about that. My financial strategy is assume I have no money <laughs> and I just act as if I'm still like a poor undergrad student. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, if it works, it works. The mindset I mean, thing is everything. It could be better. <laughs> I do. I follow the budget mom and her paycheck to paycheck budgeting system. And that has definitely helped me a lot, but I have a long way to go. Um, so we're going to finish with a few rapid fire questions. So we're just going to try to mm -hmm. do these like quick answers. Okay. Okay. So what are you currently reading? I am reading Bridgerton because I'm complete <gasps> trash. <laughs> oh, I want to, oh my God. See, this is why we can't do quick answers. I want to talk about it so much. Okay. But that's fascinating. I'm so curious to hear. Cause I, I, love I definitely use the word fascinating and not despicable. <laughs> no, it's so, um, I love the sort of guilty pleasure, um, just thinking about the guilty pleasure genre of behavior, if, that, if that's a way to put it, because I think, oh my God, like we haven't even talked about your long Furby situation. <laughs> and I just think there's so <laughs> like talking about our behaviors that are like completely, let's, let's call them unproductive. Like they're not, yeah. they're not leading toward our furthering of our career, but nope. they make us happy. And therefore yeah. there is value and growth in that, you know, even watching bridge, I, I binged the whole thing, you oh, know, so freaking and good. it was so satisfying. Like I enjoyed it so much. Um, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't think too deeply about it. You <laughs> <Nope>. know, I <laughs> didn't write a thesis on it, but it was very satisfying. So that's awesome. I love it. I right also here for my, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I read all seven Harry Potter books during quarantine. Yes. So it's like, even though yes. I've already read them, that's like, that's the same kind of thing. They just feel so good to read. But let's not talk about JK Rowling and her yeah, no, no, terrible no. behavior, but. The most wonderful thing about the Harry Potter books is they just existed one day. Nobody knows who wrote them. They just. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> they just materialized. <laughs> yep. That's exactly it. Okay. What are you cheap about and what do you invest in? Um, this was another hard one for me because I'm, I'm not really cheap in that like I, I buy things that are cheap or like poorly made, but I do try to like have a very KonMari 
minimalist mm -hmm. mindset. So I like with clothes, I don't buy very many clothes, but when I do, I try and buy the best thing that I can afford in mm -hmm. that category. So like, I don't have a very big wardrobe compared to a lot of people that shop fast fashion and that sort of thing. But what I do have is like quality and I really like it. I do ball out on ice cream every week. Like top of the line, <laughs> yes, $10 a pint, like yeah. ice cream. Oh, I, I don't have it. time for your cruddy briars. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, <it's> so <laughs> I love it. Um, that's a, that's a question that comes from financial diet. And it's like, I just <laughs> I, it's so interesting to hear how people prioritize, like, like I, you know, I don't really, I don't care about clothes. Mm -hmm. I don't spend hardly any money on clothes. I probably should because my wardrobe is terrible. But with maybe once we're in person and I have to be a grown up professional yeah. looking person more often than I will. The other thing is like knickknacks. Like I'm, I don't know. Sometimes I'm right. out shopping and I see something and I'm like, that's so cute. But then I'm like, this is going to sit on a shelf and accumulate mm -hmm. clutter and dust. And so I just, I pass. You know, I think what I invest in is like, I don't invest in a whole lot, but because I'm broke most of the time, but, um, I will spend money on an app that I feel like really helps me, you know, mm -hmm. like yeah. I, I found this like affirmations app that I really liked. And it's, I think it's called think up and it's like, I'll spend $3 a month on an app. If it like helps my behavior, even though it mm -hmm. seems kind of silly. I used to feel like, oh my God, I can't spend money on apps. There's so many free apps. Why would you spend money on them? And now it's like, mm -hmm. no, I'll spend money on an app because they're like providing you this framework of antecedents essentially for yeah. certain behaviors, you know? So yeah, it's interesting. Okay. I'm going to skip one. Okay. What are you inflexible about and what do you let slide? So like, what are you anal about? What do you let slide? <laughs> um, so in undergrad, I lived in a one bedroom apartment with three other people that were very messy. And no matter what I did, it wasn't enough for me to keep up on top of the mess. So we had a big, big roach problem. <laughs> and I have genuine roach trauma. Oh my God. <laughs> from living there. So anything that can attract bugs, um, you know, we live in an apartment right now. So we had a a neighbor that we think was a hoarder. And when she moved out, the bugs descended into our apartment. Um, and it just, it, it tears me up and I get so anal about everything being clean and dry and all of the food being packaged up and sealed and bug traps being <laughs> out. And I will just, I will lose my mind. I can't, I can't so do it. Funny. I mean, I guess that's a good thing to be anal about, <laughs> you know, yeah. like to be inflexible <laughs> about it's like cleanliness. Yes. Cleanliness. Um, things that I let slide. Um, I mean, I'm trying to let, I'm trying to be kinder to myself when I don't get things done. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would love in an ideal world, part of my evening routine is making sure that I load and start the dishwasher. Mm -hmm but I'm learning to let that slide when I've been out late doing something fun. Yes. I love it. I, I wish I could remember where I listened to so many podcasts. I wish I could remember where I heard it. Um, maybe I read it, but someone basically said like, you know, they were in a therapy session and they were like, 
going on and on. Like, I just can't get it all done. Like I don't have the energy to stand at the dishwasher and rinse the freaking dishes and then put them in so that they don't have food on them when they come out. And the therapist was like, so run the dishwasher twice. And it was Mm. like, oh, the person was like, it never occurred to me that I could just skip that step of rinsing the dishes putting them in the dishwasher. And then if there was food on them, still run it again. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we just put so much pressure on ourselves and it's like, it's okay it if you matter? use a little extra water for that one time, you know, the rest of the time you're, you're doing fine. It's okay. If the dishes stay in the sink for one night, yeah. um, the world will not collapse. And if it means you're going to get a half hour of extra sleep, that might be really the best thing you could do for yourself. Yeah. So hmm, super interesting. Well, that basically wraps it up. I know this was a long episode today. I'm probably not going to edit a whole lot because it was such a great conversation. And I'm so grateful that Nicole was um, my first guest that I could interview in this format. I feel so Um, honored. (laughs) It's just so great. You know, I'm so happy to be doing this and um, I'm hoping we can I'm hope. I mean, we'll, we'll have you back on at some point, honestly, oh, like we'll thanks. make this maybe a running, uh, series of chats with Nicole. <laughs> so, um, and, and please, if there's anything you'd like to comment on, on this episode, please reach out. You can find me at always forward a underscore ABA on Instagram. And we'd love to hear your comments or, or questions for us. So thank you, Nicole. And yeah, thank you. I'll catch you next time. We really appreciate the fact that you took the time to listen to today's episode. If you liked it, please consider subscribing and giving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast. We're always open to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and comments. And the best way to contact me is to find me on Instagram at alwaysforward underscore ABA. Thank you so much for being here. And now a disclaimer. This podcast is not in any way associated with our place of employment or the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. The opinions expressed on this episode do not reflect the opinions of any specific organization. We create these episodes because we enjoy sharing our thoughts and talking about behavior science. We do not aim or claim to provide any direct clinical, psychological, or behavior analytic service or advice. Nothing you hear on the show should be considered as such.